0: If I could sum up this message today, don't y'all leave after I say this now, but God is holy, by his grace we have been freed, and he is worthy of our pursuit of holiness, no matter the cost. We want to have that in our minds today as we spend this time in 1 Corinthians 5. And if you're visiting with us today, if you just were out of town or something last week, this is... Part two today of First Corinthians five, as we work through this chapter, and I can't and I shouldn't say everything that I said last week, uh, because then this sermon would be like an hour and a half or two hours or something like that. Now, if I go along, you're like, well, at least it wasn't two hours. Um, but I do want to do just a little bit of catching up as we get started today uh, as well. Last Sunday, in studying through verses one through five, uh, we heard these truths that are that are critically important to our learning about proper biblical loving church discipline these things number one christians have been freed from sin's bondage so we are going to put off the old and put on the new by god's grace number two god's wisdom is foolishness in this world and the wisdom of this world is foolishness to god so with that, hard does not equal bad. Sometimes we feel that hard, the heart of following Jesus because we are wrestling against him even in our own minds, our own hearts. Uh, the wisdom of the world that we still can cling to versus the wisdom of God that is being sown into our hearts and minds as we hear and read and study the word. There's a battle going on, isn't there? And we also know that others around us are going through that same battle, which makes these things hard. But hard is not bad. Number three, it is important to remember that we as a church must be a group of contributors, not just consumers. Number four, we are the church. You did not go to church today. The church came here. Number five, loving discipline is characterized by mourning. Not like evening and morning, M O U R. Mourning. That's what loving discipline must be characterized by. Not angst, not ridicule, not needless humiliation. Mourning. Number six, Jesus gave instructions on church discipline. It starts with any one of us going privately to the one who sinned against us. And if they repent, it's over. If they refuse to repent, take one or two. And if they repent, it's over. If they still refuse to repent, the whole church gets involved and pleads with the one in sin for their repentance and praise. And if they repent... We tell the church that the repentance has taken place and it's over. And we rejoice. But if they still refuse to listen to the church, if they are still unrepentant, now they are clearly, characteristically unrepentant. And followers of Jesus follow Jesus. And only followers of Jesus are in the church. So that person can no longer be in the church, a member, unless they repent at which time, with wisdom and with appropriate reconciliation, they should be restored. Okay? That is the that is the grid through which Jesus gave us to do this thing. So there's a little catch-up. And before we go on, uh, I want to remind us of this, to help us to get into the right mindset, thinking on things that are right and true and honorable and excellent and worthy of praise and all those things, to help us move forward into this chapter and in this topic of church discipline. Please remember as I preach today, that God has given us, Christians, grace, not just for our salvation, but for our sanctification and and our glorification too. In Romans 8, God is shown to be responsible for our calling, our justification, our sanctification, and our glorification. Philippians 1.6 teaches us that what God has started in us at salvation, he is faithful to complete. God's grace extends right through our salvation, through our growth, to the day, the moment when we see Jesus face to face and become just like him. The Christian life is not get saved, and then you'd better get your act together and keep your act together or else. That is not the Christian life. God's grace is more than just a ticket out of hell and into heaven. God, in grace, saved you. He made you a new creation. He's changing you and conforming you into the image of his son. He is working in you to change your wants, your desires to become Christ-like, and God's grace is going to carry you You, Christian, you will persevere all the way to your glorification. You will be like Jesus. God has spoke it to be. You will be like Jesus. No more sin, no more death. So the process of progressive sanctification is sometimes called becoming who you are. Because your identity is found in Christ But our daily actions aren't there yet. Our desires aren't all there yet, but they will be. Praise God. So church discipline is is what happens when a person says they're a believer. They begin to show evidence of being a person who's enjoying the grace of God. They're obeying. They're changing. And then sometime later, they're not. They're not becoming more like Jesus. Uh, They're not acting like a Christian as if it appears as if they've undone what we all thought God was doing. And when a person gives great evidence that they are, in fact, not on the same path that we are, they are not persevering, they are not enjoying the grace of God, they are not becoming more like Jesus, nor do they desire to be in their unrepentance. And yet they insist on being called a brother in Christ and being counted among us. When that is happening, When that is happening, we can't continue to affirm their faith unless they repent and show that, in fact, they are following Jesus. Okay? In John 2, the Apostle John writes of people who had been counted among the church but who proved not to be. And he wrote this, They were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. And this is why some Christians struggle with assurance of their salvation. Just a quick commercial break here. If they're wrestling in their mind between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God, and they're, they're desiring the wisdom of the world and the destruction that that's going to bring, and therefore they are not following Jesus in their actions, in their choices, then it just makes sense that that individual in that situation isn't going to feel saved. That person and the one who is under discipline in unrepentant sin uh, uh, for the glory of God, for the health of the church, and for their own joy and growth, they need repentance. They must submit to the Lord, and God has called on us, the church, to help one another in this. Okay? So with all of this in mind, let's jump back into 1 Corinthians 5, and we're going to start today in verse 6. In verse 6. Starts off with this: Your boasting is not good. Paul earlier said the church was being arrogant, and now he calls their their action or their inaction. He calls it boasting. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? And before we go on any further paul 's statement here is already proven. Uh, do you see this vicious cycle happening in this passage? In chapters one through four, Paul warns the church that the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God are at odds with each other. He warns them not to glory in man, not to boast in man. In the first five verses of this chapter, then we find that a man has been sinning in such a way that 's gross even to unbelievers, and continuing to carry on in that, living as if though he 's all good. Like he's a solid Christian, an upstanding believer, following Jesus, acting like he's living victoriously when he's not. That's arrogance. And when the church, in full view of this man's high-handed sin, is carrying on like nothing's wrong, Paul says this is arrogance, which will lead to, do you see what happened? Arrogance led to arrogance led to arrogance. Arrogance. Which will lead to more and more and more. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? And this doesn't mean that uh, the church is going to soon become a bunch of people who commit regularly incest. That's not what Paul's saying. But it does mean that a general sense of disregard for God's authority was going to spread. Like a disease. Like a cancer. The church was disobeying Jesus, which was only going to lead to more people disobeying Jesus. And remember, you can choose whether or not to initially put that leaven in the bread, but you cannot control the consequences once it's begun its work. You cannot say, I want the leaven, but I don't want the bread to rise. It doesn't work. It doesn't work can't be. And this is totally applicable for each one of us in our own individual lives. We can we can choose to sin, but we cannot choose the consequences of our sin. But remember, we're talking about the church here in this passage, not just the individual. So that means if one person in this church regards sin in their heart and life, that leaven of sin will cause the bread to rise for the church. For the church. My personal sin... And yours brings consequences that you and I cannot control on this church as a whole. And therefore, if I refuse to repent when I'm in sin, I am showing actively my lack of love for any and all of you. Any refusal to repent, to turn away from sin, to turn to righteousness, is not only an act of the will against God, it is also an act of the will against this church. It's betrayal. Remember, Jesus said, let him be to you as a tax collector. And this is true whether we want to believe it or not. Aren't we so prone? Aren't we so prone to want to avoid conflict at all costs? And the truth is, there is a cost to that. And avoiding conflict can be a sinful choice with its own new set of consequences. And that leaven also leavens the whole lump. Uh, There is a consequence to not going forward with discipline when it is needed, and everyone suffers for it. That's why Paul is rebuking the church in this chapter and not that man. So, verse 7. Paul gives this command, cleanse out the old leaven. And this word for cleanse means thoroughly. This is a complete cleansing. That you may be a new lump. He says, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil. Malice uh, meaning our motive, our thinking, our desires. Evil being the actions that those bring about but instead with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. God forbid. Paul is saying here, don't celebrate Christ's shed blood and the forgiveness of your sins by sinning. That's not the right celebration. In the original Passover, think back to Egypt. This is from Exodus 12. Remember, the final plague in Egypt was the death of the firstborn, right? Israel were slaves in Egypt. They were slaves. God was bringing this judgment, this death in Egypt, and God instructed Israel to take the blood from lambs that they killed and to put the blood on their doorposts. And God said, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. So so what would happen if an Israelite family disregarded that instruction? What would happen? What if there was no blood? On their doorposts their firstborn would be dead too. Please realize the Israelite firstborn did not survive that night because they were better than the Egyptians. They were not accepted based on merit. They were spared by the blood of another. They were spared by the blood of another. And this Passover pictured for them and for us too now what Jesus was going to do at the cross. Jesus' blood was shed. Jesus suffered in our place, taking the just wrath that we deserve on himself at the cross. And if you have put your faith and trust in Christ's finished work for your sin, if you have called on Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then you too have and will experience a very similar thing as the Israelites did that night. And even though uh, you and I are no better than the rest of the world, when God sees the blood of Jesus, he will pass over. We've been spared, church. And we have been justified, declared to be not guilty. Then, after Israel was spared, God said, get your stuff and go, didn't he? And you know what God expected Israel to do after that? To get up and go. That's what he expected them to do. They were no longer slaves. They were no longer slaves. They could leave their old bondage behind. So guess what a Christian who has been bought with the price, who has been brought to life after having been dead in our sins and trespasses, being a new creation in Christ, a people who have been freed from our bondage, To sin and death. Guess what we are supposed to do? What does it make sense for us to do? Get up and go, right? We're going to walk in newness of life. We're going to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. We're going to run this race that is set before us, looking to the author and perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ. Christians, we look at Jesus in sincerity and in truth. And we learn of his sinless life, his death, his burial, his resurrection. We consider the cost he paid for our sin, the great love with which God has loved us. And then the malice, our selfish, sinful motives, are replaced with Christ-like, godly desires and motives. And then you will do what you do because you now want what you want. You look to Jesus, you behold his glory, and it changes you. It changes your thinking and your desires and then your actions. Uh, Paul said this in verse 7. You really are unleavened. You realize that, right? There's leavened stuff going on here, but church, you are unleavened. You really are. Christians, the old, you died. The new has come. Your identity now is found in Jesus Christ. God has declared you not guilty and righteous, having given to you the righteous record of Jesus himself. So church, become who you are in Christ Jesus. Celebrate your new life, your new identity. Celebrate the Passover by living in freedom. The freedom that Christ has purchased for you. Church, Christ has set us free from our bondage to sin. So please don't let any of us try to convince anyone else that things were better back in Egypt. That's a lie. We were running headlong into death and destruction, desperately trying to fulfill our longings for peace and rest, and never being satisfied. And if we let someone among us go that direction, passively watching as they run straight for their destruction— After having been counted among us, may it never be. How can we pretend to offer people living water and then turn our eyes the other way when we know our brother or sister is drinking salt water out of a broken cistern? Because we don't want them to be upset with us? Because we think they'll get mad? We need to be willing to throw ourselves out there into that felt danger And love each other sacrificially. We cannot celebrate our freedom and worship the Lord together uh, here in this place together with the church in sincerity and in truth and at the same time simultaneously live in bondage running into the mouth of the roaring lion who seeks to devour us. Opposites cannot both be true. You cannot lie while you're telling the truth. You cannot repent while you continue in your sin. You cannot be charitable in greediness. You following me? You cannot love and be selfish. Love your brother. Love your sister. You cannot do that while you're selfishly protecting your own skin. Okay? Christ said, you're either for me or you're against me. There is no neutral. And you're either for this church or you're against it. Remember, this church is the people, not the building. We're not a corporation or a club, not a logo or a website. We are the church. So let's love each other and faithfully point each other to to Jesus, okay? Um, We also—and now I'm setting up the next few verses here— we also have a responsibility to point this world to Jesus. We keep each other's eyes fixed on him, and we want to point the world to him. We point each other to Jesus as we grow. We point the world to Jesus because He is our and their only hope. And sometimes we can get caught up uh, thinking about or talking about how crazy this world is, forgetting that we've all done more than our fair share to make it that way. Amen. And we uh, we hear that we're a city set on a hill. We hear that we're a city set on a hill, and sometimes we mistake that hill for Mount Everest perhaps even thinking we made it to the top because we're such good climbers? Would we teach our kids to sing Hide It Under a Bushel? No! And then perhaps we forget that not obeying the principle of that song is actually not very cute. And Paul's going to address this in the next few verses. So we're now we're, we're in verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter, so this is a previous letter, the prequel to 1 Corinthians, if you will. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral people. And evidently that's what the church did. Except they stopped associating with the wrong immoral people. Paul goes on to write, uh, Not at all meaning the sexually immoral people of this world. Or the greedy and the swindlers or idolaters. So, so just sinners, okay? It's not just the sexually immoral, it's sinners. Paul's including anyone who'd be living in sin, the loss of this world. He says, since then, you would need to go out of the world. So just to clarify, I always want to say that phrase differently than how it's written. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. And just to clarify, the day we no longer interact with unsaved people, the day we no longer interact with unsaved people is the day we are absent from the body and present with the Lord. Until then, interact. He says, now I'm writing to you. Paul's clarifying this for them, correcting their misunderstanding, not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or a viler, drunker, or, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So do you see this distinction here? Sadly, the church was all too happy to close themselves off from anyone out there in the world who was in sin. But... They were unwilling to address it among themselves. And what did Paul call this? Arrogance. Boasting. And what else is it? Well, it's hypocrisy. It's hypocrisy. There's something about the cold shoulder you give to your unsaved co-worker who lives with his girlfriend, combined with the warm greeting you give to your brother and fellow church member who's sleeping with his stepmom, that just doesn't seem right. Amen? Kind of like uh, like if a Christian shares uh, with her prayer circle about the lady down the street who's talking about her behind her back. Think about that for a second. Or a Christian who complains about how long it takes Washington to get anything done and then proceeds to filibuster and sidetrack church meetings because he's not getting what he wants. Those things never happen, right? Or the pastor who acts and talks like he is a superior life form over everyone else, when in reality he's got his own problems and sins to deal with. Not this one, of course, but no. <laughs> you know, some people don't think they can come to church because they don't think they're good enough. Who gave them that idea? But they'd fit in just fine, wouldn't they? <laughs> we all got in here the same way, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And we're all headed to the same destination. Praise God. Praise God. So maybe instead of falling into the trap of like the us for and no more, or the frozen chosen mentality, or whatever other meant to be humorous but are actually kind of sad nicknames a church can have, we should expect people who are lost to act like they're lost, unsaved, and in bondage. And then we should expect people who are saved and free and given new life in Christ to live like they have new life in Christ. This makes sense, doesn't it? Jesus ate with sinners, and he was rebuked for it by religious people. And Jesus rebuked those very people, religious leaders who claimed they were following God and yet lived like they were, as he said, of their father, the devil— Jesus called them hypocrites. So Paul here in 1 Corinthians 5 is simply telling us to follow Jesus. Go, make disciples. And when a person calls himself or calls themselves a brother, uh, when they claim to be a disciple but live in opposition to God, characteristically unrepentant, to continue in that association is hypocrisy. It's hypocrisy. The question that we have here then, how far do we go with that? Uh, Meaning, how exactly do we apply this command to not even eat with such a one? That's from verse 11. And something that's helpful to remember so that we can rightly apply this command is that these churches in the first century, they were together daily. Daily. And when they were together daily, what would be involved in that? Uh, When you finish working for the day, you gather together with your brothers and sisters, you show hospitality with one another, and then what do you do? You eat. You eat together. They had dinner together often, daily. (laughs) And when you combine that with their recent practice of not spending any time with unbelievers, so they weren't eating with them, you combine that together with that, and the regular practice uh, made eating together a marker, a common everyday kind of identifier that these people are together. They're all in together. And so Paul makes uh, gives this instruction to not include this man who has proven to be unrepentant and yet who seeks to be treated as though he is. Paul is saying, do not associate in the practices of the church with this man as though everything's fine. Because it's not. It's not fine. So what would that look like for us? First Baptist Church, 2020, Mount Pleasant, Michigan. What does that look like for us? What are some things that we should not be doing with the person who's actively claiming to be our brother or sister, and yet who is actively living as though they are not. So, boy, this could go any one of many directions, right? So let's just think of some examples. Okay, so maybe the big example, the Lord's Supper. It would be an obvious thing to think about. Remember, uh, one of the purposes of this ordinance is to serve as a marker. It's an ordinance for the church, not for the world and it doesn't make you more saved than when you first started taking it. It's, it's for the church. So if a person has been disciplined by the church, if they continue to refuse to repent and to be reconciled, and they're sitting in a service, which we would welcome them to do, by the way, just like anybody else in our community, we'd want them to be here, we would want them hearing the gospel, and we would want another opportunity to plead with them to repent. Come to church. Okay? But it would be right for our deacons without making a scene or anything like that, to just pass the tray to the next person in the row. Or if they're sitting in the middle of the row and and you're sitting next to them, it would be right for you to discourage them from grabbing a cup or that bread out of the tray and just pass that tray along. And I say this because of this, 1 Corinthians 11. Paul warns the church that eating and drinking in an unworthy manner will bring judgment on the one who eats and drinks. So to prevent and discourage people from participating in the Lord's Supper when they would be bringing judgment on themselves in doing so, that's not mean. That's actually kind. It is the right thing to do for their good. For their good. Following that and along these lines, uh, given that a person is not presently a member— participating in things like committees or church business meetings or things like that, uh, other instances where the disciplined person's participation wouldn't make sense because they're no longer a member, they're not going to do church member things. Uh, beyond some of those kinds of examples, it gets harder. It gets harder to say what's acceptable, helpful, right. And folks, that's not Paul's fault. You realize that? That's not Paul's fault. It's certainly not God's fault. It's a consequence of sin, unrepentant sin. When sin is present, things get harder. Things get muckier. Things get harder to reason through and figure out. That's what sin does. The truth is that when you combine the sinful practices of the church at Corinth, when they had become accustomed, what they'd become accustomed to after having taken the principle of separation way too far, And then you add to that the way we in our day and age and culture see church, which is uh, sort of like a business model, the event-oriented, more consumer-oriented than contributor-oriented kind of enterprise. And then you add to that the ongoing unrepentance of the one who God would have us to discipline. You mash all that up together, and we say, okay, um, how do we do this perfectly? How do we do this without flaw? It sounds kind of difficult, doesn't it? but it's right. It's worth it. The one who is in sin needs rescued. They're worth it. The health of the church is worth it. The testimony of the church to the outside world is worth it. And listen, they're not going to like our pursuit of holiness, but they need to see the light of Christ, not hypocrisy. And most importantly, God's worth it. When we observe the Lord's Supper and spend that time beholding the glory of Jesus and his sacrifice for our freedom, it's worth it. He is worthy. It's right that we would give him our lives as living sacrifices. Now, all that being said, I believe the principle that we need to follow in order to rightly apply this call to not even eat with such a one would be to think about whatever it is that we're about to do, asking, is this a church thing? Is this a time of fellowship and relationship building that identifies all of the participants as brothers and sisters committed to follow Jesus together? And if what you're doing can be described as that, and if that person would participate that and through it have a faith that they are not practicing affirmed, if that's what's happening, uh, that person shouldn't be involved in that. Because it would only feed into their false assurance And feed into their unfounded belief that they're good to go with God when their life is saying otherwise. That's why. We should not be giving them further reason to believe something that they should not believe. And when we do interact or spend time with that person, it should include sincerely encouraging them to repent. Sincerely. Uh, The person who knows they're not a Christian, that person. Or the person who we know has never heard or believed the gospel, totally different story. Does that make sense? Paul says, no, we go to the world. Okay? We want to be with them. We want to interact with them. We want. There isn't any false assurance of association with that because they know. Okay? And now Paul continues down that train of thought. Verse 12. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It's not those inside the church whom you're to judge. God judges those outside. And he says this in quotes, purge the evil person from among you. And that quote is from Deuteronomy 13 and all over other places in Deuteronomy, the idea being to remind the church that God's always commanded his people to remove the leaven from within and to pursue holiness collectively, okay? Um, We are to treat the lost like Jesus treated the lost and point them to him. Remembering that we were lost and dead in our trespasses and sins, but God was rich in mercy and saved us and gave us freedom. Remember, God didn't give us a little extra nudge and we were already pretty good. <laughs> that didn't happen. We'd better not treat the lost like that. Like maybe we'll take them seriously when we start uh, to talk to them, where they start showing some promise and some improvement. Or, or maybe they read our doctrinal statement and believe in it entirely. So now we'll start to. No, that's not how that works. That's not how salvation works. We were slaves to our sin, we were dead, and by God's grace, we were saved. And now, by God's grace, we're progressively being changed. That's how it's going to work for them, too. Okay? Now, just like we did after the last few verses, we need to ask a question or two to make sure that we're being precise with our application. And it's obvious from these verses there's an outside and an inside. What's that all about? Okay? This outside, this inside. And with the reference to Israel, uh, well, that was a whole nation, right? Israel was a nation. The law, in a sense, was their constitution, The church, we'd say the universal church in this instance, we're not a nation. That's not what we are. So how would we, then, First Baptist Church, apply this? Uh, Another aspect of this that that could make it kind of hard to discern is that there wasn't a First Baptist Church of Corinth. Did you know that? There wasn't a Corinth Church of the Nazarene. There wasn't Corinth Community Church or Corinth Presbyterian. The church age was still new. Jesus had risen from the dead and ascended into heaven With these in these people's lifetimes. Paul and others were traveling the known world, preaching the gospel, and telling all the nations about God, many of them hearing any or all of it for the first time ever. So there was one church in Corinth. Paul wrote this letter to a church. And there was likely no building designated as the church building with a sign and flowerbed, parking lots, and all that kind of stuff. They would have had probably a larger place and space to worship together, but they were usually in each other's homes. Now, for reasons we'll discuss another time, and all God's people said amen, perhaps in our current series in Sunday School, there's several denominations, several local churches, and nearly every community, aren't there? That's different than it used to be. For other reasons we'll talk about later, okay? But it is what it is. We know this, not all of them preach the gospel. There are groups of people who meet in buildings and call what they're doing church, but they don't believe what the Bible teaches. They don't preach the gospel. They openly condone sin, and that ought to sadden us. They need to hear the truth, but it might be hard to tell them. There are also other churches in this community that preach the gospel. They do preach the gospel. So are we supposed to pursue church discipline as like this big collective, kind of like an Israel kind of thing? With these churches, all of us together, all of us interacting with each other in it? And I believe the answer is no. And yes. And here's why. Quickly, I would say yes in that if a member of another gospel-believing church is disciplined correctly, biblically, and that person is still living in unrepentant sin and then tries to become a member of our church, they come here and want to join, I think we should honor that church's action. And encourage that person to go back to the church where they need to be reconciled. If someone's disciplined and and out of the membership of, say, like First Baptist of St. Louis or something like that. And they come here and attend for a little while and they repent. By God's grace, amen, they repented. I think we should strongly encourage them to go back to First Baptist in St. Louis and be officially forgiven and reconciled and then rejoice in that victory with their church family who faithfully loved them and has been earnestly praying for them. Plus, if someone's living in unrepentant sin, an ongoing sin, and we know it, it'd be kind of hard for us to affirm their faith and welcome them into membership in the first place, wouldn't it? We wouldn't, we wouldn't do that to them, whether they were disciplined by a previous church or not. So we could say yes in that way, but primarily the answer is no. Meaning we should not participate together with another church in a discipline process. Because this passage teaches, this one we've been working through, this passage teaches and gives these instructions to a local church. Such as First Baptist Church of Mount Pleasant. We are a local church. Uh, For another example that points to the idea of local church and local church membership, Acts 20, 28, instructs elders pastors to pay careful attention to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Did you catch that clause in the sentence there? To care for the church of God, which Christ obtained with his blood. There are different fellowships in this area, and the Holy Spirit did not make me an overseer of any other church than this one. I have no business leading any other church through a discipline process. Uh, Just like I would have no business working on strategic planning or the discipleship strategies or picking curriculum for Sunday school classes in any other church. I am your pastor, members of First Baptist. I am not the pastor of the members of Community or Potter's House or any other church in this area. Then listen to Hebrews 13, 17. This is an instruction for people of the church. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So first of all, just like I shouldn't be trying to pastor another church, the pastors of other churches shouldn't be trying to pastor you. Okay, you don't need to worry about following the leaders of other churches. First Baptist, the leaders of First Baptist are your leaders. And when I stand before God, I'm not going to give an account for what happens amongst the membership of Central Michigan Christian Church. But I am going to give an account for what happens within the membership of First Baptist Church. That's where God has placed me. So let me take a commercial break right now and just say this. Membership is incredibly important, and it's biblical. Okay, the Bible gives us a standard that should result in a local local church that is elder-led, deacon-served, and congregationally ruled. Elder-led, deacon-served, congregationally ruled. And every member of this congregation is just as important and just as significant as any other member of the body, whether we might consider somebody an eye or a pinky toe. More on that later, like a couple months from now. I am responsible to lead, pray, to teach our church, but I do not have the authority to discipline people by myself or to decide how all the money is going to be spent. I don't get to handpick unilaterally who all the leaders are going to be. I don't get to just rewrite the Constitution however I want or to close this church down if I don't like how things are going. I don't have that kind of power. And I don't want it. <laughs> what I do is teach and preach and pray, and lead. Our deacons are called to serve the congregation in such a way that frees me up to teach and preach and pray and lead. That's Acts 6. And the congregation rules. It's kind of a funny thing to say that way out of context. Right? The congregation rules. Paul didn't tell the elders in Corinth to remove this man on their own. Paul didn't even remove this man himself, and he was an apostle and the guy that planted the church. Surely he could do it. No. The congregation had to do it. Membership is incredibly important. If I minimize it, we all suffer. If you minimize it, we all suffer. So let me say this. If you're worshiping with us, uh, and you would call First Baptist your church Uh, but you haven't committed yourself yet to membership and and you haven't given us the privilege and the joy of affirming you and your faith and counting you among us, please join the church. Please join the church. Uh, The next membership class, if you didn't hear earlier, starts the first Sunday in February. Extra plug. And if you have more questions about membership, I would be happy, happy, happy to chat with you about it. So listen, we're imperfect, yes? In case anybody was wondering... And if we were perfect, we started being imperfect about a year and a half ago when I showed up, right? But I'm pretty sure we were imperfect before that too. And I'm pretty sure that we'll stay imperfect when more people join. But Christ isn't imperfect. Christ isn't imperfect. And the Bible doesn't give us instruction that God never intends for us to keep. We can't promise that no one will get hurt. Just like an individual can't promise that he or she won't ever hurt the church. Sometimes we forget that's a two-way thing, isn't it? But we want you anyways. (laughs) Let's run this race and fight these battles together on purpose. And church, I'm asking you, let's do this together. Let's be committed to work together in unity and to fight for each other. Never against. We fight for each other. For each other's joy and for the glory of God. Let's be willing to do hard things that might seem hard at the time in order to help each other avoid what will surely be much harder down the road. And let's also stand ready to forgive when people turn and repent. Let's commit to following God's instruction for us because we love him more than anything else and because he's worthy of our praise and our obedience. Let's pray together. Father, there's so much There's so much that we could think about. There's so many roads we could go down and and rabbit trails. So many questions that we could have. God, the reality is um, we're all kinds of messed up. And it's because of our sin. And so, God, we just pause now to say thank you. We thank you for Jesus Christ. I pray that this time, as we've spent these two weeks looking at 1 Corinthians 5, and even as we push forward in the book, Lord, that one of the great impacts of this study would be that we would be humble before you, honest with you in our own hearts, that the blood of Jesus would become all the more precious to us, and that the people that we worship with would become more precious to us. Uh, Lord, you have called us your temple, not just each person individually, but this church. So, Lord, may we strive for holiness because you're worthy of all of our worship and praise, of every sacrifice we could give. You're worthy. And because this church, this church needs all of us, each part, each member doing its part, loving one another, bearing with one another, pursuing unity. So God, give us grace for this task. And may that um, sincerity and that truth that we share together be a very, very bright light that shines from this place, that the world would see that Jesus matters and that truth matters, the Bible matters. And that he is the only place where we can really find true joy and everlasting life. God, may we honor you in these things. God, help us. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.